This evening I want to explore in more depth this theme of uh, equanimity and finding balance in a world of change. The uh, breath meditation that we've been doing, this uh, being mindful of the breathing, uh, to me is very much uh, a way of developing equanimity. So the whole of the practice really that we've been doing since we've arrived um, has this theme running very much through it. So the breath as we've been exploring is this place to keep coming back to. And uh, if you think through all of the different things that you may have been through today and uh, last night, uh, it kind of seems longer than that. In some ways, <laughs> it's not so long that we've been here. Um, but all the different moods and feelings, uh, all the different kind of plans perhaps you've had or memories, different fantasies or obsessions that have come up, all of those different and uh, changing aspects of experience that have flowed through, there's been this invitation to notice that's happening, recognize that's happening, allow it to happen, and also to come back, come back to the breathing, come back to breathing in, to breathing out. So there's been this place of balance, this place of stillness within all of that changing circumstance. And we've not so much been trying to stop all of that happening. You know, how can I stop having these thoughts or how can I stop having these changing emotional states? But rather this sense that within all of that flow and flux, there's a place to come home to. And that's really what this quality of uh, equanimity is all about, this stillness, this balance uh, within the changing circumstances of our lives. Some ways, uh, this topic can seem very contemporary, and uh, you know, you only need to switch on the news any day of the week, and you can see it feels like we're living through turbulent times, you know, both in this country and uh, throughout the world, and uh, it can feel really quite overwhelming. You know, the speed of change and the challenges and ups and downs that are happening in the world. And yet sometimes I reflect on that and think, well, you know, can I, I'm no great historian, but can I imagine a time in history that wasn't particularly turbulent? You know, you look at these different periods and they all had their own things going on, their challenges and, you know, it's not as if there's been this kind of continuous peace and stability in the world and then suddenly things are kind of going a bit crazy, you know. Um, there's always been these things happening. And so to this quality of uh, equanimity is meeting um, something that's not just contemporary but really quite universal in the, the human experience. The experience of losing things that we love is a you know, timeless, universal thing that we, we form these bonds and then we, uh, we feel pain when we lose the things that we, we want, that we love. The experience of being separated, um, sorry, of being uh, faced with what we don't want. Again, a very basic human experience. It's different in different times, it's different in different places. But somehow it's written into experience that we, we are faced with things we don't want. With these bodies that get old, these bodies that are prone to sickness, um, 
having to face our own death and the death of others. These really basic aspects of the human condition. So we might want to somehow switch that all off. I mean, you know, the Buddha uh, is said to, you know, been looking for a solution to the problem of uh, old age, sickness and death. And uh, I don't mean to sound cheeky, but, you know, on one level you could argue he didn't find it because he got old, he got sick and he died. Um, So clearly the solution can't be in terms of somehow turning all of these things off, somehow making a world in which only good things happen to us and we are never faced with loss. I mean, that kind of project is, is impossible. So the practice, the practice of equanimity, the practice of uh, meditation and the whole path, really, in my mind is much more about making peace with all of those changes. Uh, not trying to kind of hold back the tide, but making peace with the changes, the, the flows that uh, come into our lives. So it's making peace with this world of change, this world of impermanence. And impermanence is one of those things that we can, we can know on one level. And I was saying yesterday that uh, the, the learning that we do on a retreat is very much experiential. It's not just intellectual. It's not just information. So the, the proposition, the statement, things change, really isn't new to any of us. We all know that. And yet somehow within us there can be, uh, on some level, a resistance to that or an expectation of security, an expectation of permanence that somehow uh, seems to deny that knowledge. You know, you turn to someone, a friend, uh, someone in in the family or relationship and you say, you've changed. You know, as if they they weren't going to. I had a, a very trivial example myself, really, but it. Uh, I'll just share it with you anyway. But um, just with my bus pass, I, I live in Nottingham and I have this bus pass that gets me on the buses in Nottingham and I go all around Nottingham. I have the freedom of the wonderful city of Nottingham on this thing. And uh, I remember one day, sort of got on there and confidently put this bus pass, and it makes a nice little beeping noise, reassuring that, you know, you're in, you're on the bus. And. Uh, and it didn't make this noise. And the driver said to me, it's not working. And I, I sort of turned to him and said, well, what do you mean it's not working? It worked this morning. <laughs> and uh, there was a sense that, you know, I teach meditation, reflect on impermanence. But somehow it was a surprise that maybe these bus passes with their quite fragile technology, you know, one day might go a bit wrong, you know. <laughs> might have to go to the vast inconvenience of going to the little shop and saying, oh, it doesn't work, can you swap it for another one? <laughs> Um, so we can practice with these small disappointments, these small losses, if you like, and uh, hopefully then that gives us a chance of, of facing the bigger ones. But, but it, to me, it was a nice kind of humbling moment, really. This moment, oh yeah, look, there's this expectation of security. It worked this morning, it's going to work this evening. Um, another little story about this expectation of uh, things not changing uh, something I heard uh, Stephen Batchelor talking about, if you know him, who he teaches here uh, regularly. And as well as being a Dharma teacher, he's a keen photographer. 
And he describes once how he found a particular place and he thought this was going to be a lovely photo. Uh, I can't remember the particular detail, but perhaps a a scene in nature of some sort. But he didn't have his camera with him. So he thought, you know, know, I'll come back tomorrow and and take this. And of course he came back tomorrow and, and the light was different. And the wonderful photo that was there, that particular constellation of the light and the conditions had changed and shifted. And personally, I think uh, you know, photography is a wonderful medium for that. When you, you begin to be really sensitive to light and the effect of light on things, it can really be a doorway into feeling and recognizing the depth of this changing nature of things. Things are much more fluid, much less solid than we might imagine. I don't know about you, but you know, I look at a photo of myself and think, oh, that's me. But that's you know, how my face might appear under certain conditions of light. And those, <laughs> those light conditions change. And me looks very different. You know, we turn off all the lights in here, I suddenly look a different shade. <laughs> mm. So there's this world of impermanence, this world of change. And the question I think that's really worth exploring with this is, is there anything intrinsically painful about that? Does impermanence and change have to be painful? Or is there something to do with our reaction to it, our relationship to it, that can that can make it painful at times, but that extra suffering is, is really quite optional. And uh, if we think of uh, the biggest impermanence of all, if we think of death, which is, uh, I would say, the biggest impermanence of all, There's certainly times when, when we can feel that it's possible, even with the fact of death, to really make peace with that. Um, I don't know if you've ever had uh, the experience of um, being with the body of, of, of someone who's died, perhaps a loved one who's died. Um, but I've certainly had times of doing that, um, that there can be, and it's not always the case, but there can be a real peace and coolness there. There can be a grief and a sadness and a loss. And in a way, would we want there to be? Would we want it to be any other way? If the person's died and I don't feel anything, of course we love the person. We feel sad. We feel moved. We we feel that. We can feel that deeply. But also, there can be a feeling of of actually on on the deepest level, this is okay. So there can be at least potentially that stillness, even with that biggest impermanence. To me, those kind of uh, reflections, you know, sort of reflecting on death and, and that kind of response to that, uh, is also a clue to where some real, um, perhaps more stuck places are, really. So again, when I think of my own life, it's not necessarily those biggest losses all the time that have been the most 
painful in a way, when you contrast that with the pain or the suffering of being lost in things that are trivial, not being connected, being out of touch with life, being you know, lost in trivialities and superficialities and just you know, going on in our own kind of self-obsessed loops, that in a strange way, that, that's more painful than really meeting a loss. Because when we really meet a loss, there's that richness and a sense of, of the connection of the, the love that was there. But that triviality, that disconnection, that's what can be really difficult at times. So again, it's what we've been exploring over this time. Is what's difficult, what's arising in our experience? Or is what's difficult the resistance, the struggle, the pushing away? So if we're uh, around Dharma circles, meditation circles for uh, any length of time, uh, a word that we will hear a lot is the word dukkha, dukkha, which means uh, can mean suffering or unsatisfactoriness, um, but also has another sense of unreliability, which I just like to to touch upon here. So we think about these. Uh, kind of two meanings of the term. One might be a quality of experience, that sometimes our experience can be tinged with this sense of being unsatisfactory. It's not okay, it's not complete, a feeling that there's something missing. We're not quite at home in the world. There's a subtle or not so subtle disconnection. There's kind of quality of experience. But in the scriptures, it's also uh, described how all conditioned things are dukkha. And that's really a little bit puzzling at first when you think about it, because um, that would include this bell. This bell is dukkha. This book is dukkha, the clock. Everything in the room is dukkha in that sense. So what does that mean? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me at least, to think that the bell is experiencing some quality of unsatisfactoriness or the, you know, the bell doesn't have existential anxiety. You know? <laughs> so what does it mean to say it's dukkha? And that's where this other sense of unreliability comes in. This unreliability. It's dukkha in that it's unreliable as a place to really call a home as a place to feel this is somehow the source of my well-being. This is the source of my happiness. This is the source of my deepest joy. But we can have a tendency to do that. I mean, we're perhaps unlikely to do it with the bell, but we might do it with you know, this relationship or this particular home or this job or uh, this particular family situation. This is what I need to feel okay And that's where this quality of grasping can come in. But all of those things have this sense of being unreliable. Which is not to say that they're not wonderful, not to say that we can't engage with them, not to say we can't be touched and moved by them. But it's that movement of grasping this as somehow the ultimate source of joy and peace that can lead us to to struggle. When when that sense of ultimate well-being is pinned on anything in particular, we're setting ourselves up to struggle. 
So it's a bit like uh, an image I like is, is of a broken bike. You think of a broken bike. A broken bike can't cause us any pain at all you know, on its own. But if you get on a broken bike and you start to try and ride it somewhere, you're going to fall off and hurt yourself and bump yourself. So to me, this is a little bit of a clue about how we respond to uh, this insight into impermanence, this insight into change. So it's an insight also into the unreliability of things as being a permanent home. So an insight into letting go of wanting to fix and hold and trying to grasp things. But rather making peace with their nature that they come and they go. This is a clue to equanimity. Equanimity knows that things arise, things pass. It's not expecting that they'll hang around or stay or be a complete and final answer. And just to share with you another little story, actually, which is that a few years ago my brother got married, and uh, as I remember from some of the uh, kind of uh, sermon, I guess, uh, of the minister at the wedding, I really felt, felt was very wise, really, um, that it was about although obviously that they were going to you know rely on each other and support each other and. Uh, in many ways depend on each other, that that if they weren't looking to each other for some kind of ultimate meaning, they're not looking to each other as the ultimate meaning of life or the ultimate purpose of life, then the relationship can really flourish. Because otherwise it's like we're putting too much on it, expecting too much, expecting it to be the final thing that's going to really deliver us happiness and lasting joy and peace. And it's too much. It's like a, you know putting too much on a table; it starts to starts to bend. So, as we reflect in this way on uh, change and impermanence, we can also recognise that um, this is really part of the human condition. Nobody's immune to these things. And Paul yesterday was talking about these. Eight worldly conditions, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. I mean, these face everyone. They face everyone. I mean, they're different for different people in different circumstances in life, of course. But they really come to, you know, you're rich or poor or young or old, famous, whatever. These changing conditions... Uh, come into everybody's life in that way. So reflecting on that makes us realise that no set of conditions can make us immune. These aren't some kind um, kind of temporary or contingent aspect of life. They're not something that can be fixed just around the corner. It's not that, oh, at the moment I'm getting pleasure and pain and loss and gain and at the moment people are blaming me. But in a couple of years' time, I'll have sorted all that out. I'll have moved to a different place, got a different job, or find a new set of friends, and that'll all be gone. It's just going to be pleasure. No more loss, no more pain. You know, nobody's going to blame me. I mean, good luck. <laughs> you know, good luck. 
But the liberating thing really is that, that we don't need we don't need to find that fantasy world like that. That we can live in this world and we can find freedom in this world. We can find freedom within pleasure and pain and loss and gain. To uh, read you something from uh, Sharon Salzberg, who's a senior teacher in this tradition, on uh, the changing circumstances in life and finding equanimity within them. She says, Some years ago, Joseph Goldstein and I went to Calcutta to visit one of our teachers, Deepa Ma. She was elderly, and it seemed important to see her as soon as possible. As it happened, the only time we could visit was between teaching retreats on our way from one in Sweden to another in Australia. That meant we would arrive in India during the monsoon season. The day after we got there, we went straight to Deepamar's home and stayed with her for the day. Outside it was raining torrentially, but I was so happy to be with Deepamar again that I paid no attention to the tremendous downpour. When we left her at dusk and went down to the streets, we discovered what happens in Calcutta after a long period of torrential rain. The sewers flood, overflow, and pour through the streets. Sewage mixed with rainwater was flowing, perhaps three feet deep, past the front of the house. We stood on the step looking at that extraordinary scene. Since cabs and rickshaws couldn't move through such a flood, we would have to walk back to our hotel. Joseph, who is a bit taller than I am, commented, this should be interesting. I thought, well, yeah, if you're six foot three, it may be interesting. If you're my height, this is not going to be so interesting. So we stepped off into the flood. It was absolutely horrible to be wading through that. The depth of it, the stench, things brushing against my legs in the twilight. When the sewers overflow in Calcutta, the rats are forced out as well, and they filled the streets. Desperate, drowning rats bumped against my legs as we sloshed along. All of my senses, including my mind, were being assaulted by terrible, vile experiences. Four or five days later, we arrived in Australia. A friend had gotten us tickets to a symphony at the Sydney Opera House, which is a splendid architectural marvel built right on the ocean harbour. Before the concert, she took us out to dinner at one of those elegant restaurants that perch high above a city and and revolve as you eat. Sydney is a very beautiful place, and we enjoyed lovely sweeping vistas of it as we savoured the meal of many delicious and well-presented courses. At the concert, everyone was clean, smelling very nice and beautifully dressed. As we sat there listening to the music of Vorjak and Brahms, taking in pleasures through every sense door, I remembered Calcutta. What had happened to that reality? In six months, even in one day or one hour, we can experience so many extremes of pleasure and pain. The question is, how can a human heart, my heart or your heart, absorb the continual unremitting contrast of this life without feeling shattered 
and thinking that we cannot bear it. Battered by changes, the heart-mind can become brittle, rigid. It can wither and shrink. The Buddha said that our hearts can wilt as a flower does when it's been out in the sun too long. Have you ever encountered this feeling? How can we live with the vicissitudes? How can we hold them all with some sense of wholeness, coherence, harmony? Can we actually experience freedom in the midst of all of these immense changes as they roll through our lives over and over again? Can we actually be happy in this continuous arising and passing away? One thing that really helps to make peace with all of these changes is wise view, is seeing things clearly, is understanding uh, things as clearly and as deeply as possible. So wise view in this context can include a kind of steadiness of view. So we're not blown around too much. Our kind of perception of what the world is like or what we are like or how things are is not radically different in different times. So we might have a a pleasurable experience in meditation and there might be the temptation to think, wow, I've got it. Fantastic. Where's the monastery? Let me sign up. And the next minute there might be a painful experience in meditation and the thought might be, right, where's the door? Where's the cab number? This is not for me. So the wise view can hold a kind of steadiness in there. Wow, this is nice. This is pleasurable. This is beautiful. And it kind of knows too that this will pass. This is how the world looks. When we're experiencing this kind of condition, this kind of mind state is conditioning this view of the world. And so too, you know, ah, now my knee's really hurting. But knowing too, okay, that's painful, it's difficult, but it too will pass. So the view is somewhat steady. The view isn't being thrown around so much. And another aspect of wise view is uh, not taking things personally, not building out of these changing experiences of pleasure, pain, loss, gain, not building out of them a story about me, that's when it can get really difficult. You know? So there's a lot of pleasure and we, yeah, okay, I'm a person who's going to have a lot of pleasure and this is how my life's going to be, I've got it all together. It's going to be great. And then as we do that, we kind of, uh, in Dharma language, we talk about that as a kind of taking birth, taking birth, our identity, And then we set ourselves up for a kind of mental death as those conditions shift and change and what was pleasurable starts to fade. But so too, uh, when things are difficult or painful, I mean, there can be this sense, and uh, some people even speak about this as, as a kind of real aspect of when we really feel stuck, that it's got this feeling of permanence to it. It's a feeling that it's never going to go away. I remember in my teenage years, uh, some very difficult times in, uh, uh, 
in my teenage years and was lucky enough to have uh, my stepmom at the time uh, who was just, I always remember this very clearly, she was able to just hold that sense that this will change. Yeah, this is difficult, this is very heavy, this is hard to bear. But it will change, it's not the whole of reality. It's not the whole thing. And to me that's, that's another sense of equanimity, is this sense of perspective. You know, even in the real midst of difficulty, there's a sense that there are other aspects of life. It's not the whole of, whole of life. It's part of life. But it's not everything. And so equanimity can know that. It's very difficult uh, in life generally to make generalizations and when you make them you tend to be setting yourself up for a fall but uh, with that caveat I will offer a generalization which is that things are really very rarely as bad or as good as we imagine so we can tend to exaggerate someone says again that can take us away from equanimity and something happens and it's like oh it's a disaster something good happens ah this is wonderful forever so equanimity is, is more cool than that. Yeah, it's not so blown around by those things. Hmm. Just got a little image coming to my mind actually, yeah. If you go on uh, Google Maps and Google Earth and things like that, we've got this wonderful ability these days. You can kind of see where you live and then you can just press this button and you get this kind of zooming out. (laughs) And you see the thing in bigger perspective. And to me that's also an image of equanimity. You know, we're kind of there so stuck in things. It feels so, you know, like it's all encompassing this thing. And just that sense of zooming out, taking in the bigger picture. came across uh, some research once um, about a happiness into different uh, causes and conditions of happiness. And one of the things in there that struck me very much was something about um, the happiness of people who win the lottery and the happiness of people who have an accident that um, leaves them disabled in some way. And this research was indicating that Um, after about six months of these experiences, that the relative happiness levels weren't that different. So the things that you think are really going to change things and make them radically different forever, that again, there seems to be this this set point, that we adjust to our circumstances. So, you know, something fortunate, getting lots of money, being wealthy, brings with it New challenges, new difficulties. Who can I trust? What does my life mean now? You know, I don't have to work anymore, but now I suddenly find that I'm bored. Or, you know, what are my other difficulties that can come along? But equally, too, how people can adjust to very difficult circumstances. And this is a, 
this is a delicate uh, teaching and it's important to hold this lightly because I really don't mean this as a demand. And if it's heard as a demand for people, it can, it can be quite oppressive, really. Something's, someone's had something bad happen to them and, you know, okay, you'll, you'll get over it. I mean, that can be very uh, trivializing and I don't mean it like that at all. But it's quite something to know what human beings can survive. It is possible. And people can go through the most traumatic things and come out the other side. It is possible. And to really feel that as a, as a hope rather than a kind of imposition. And there's also this sense with equanimity that um, the things that are kind of so-called good events and the thing, things that are so-called bad events maybe aren't quite so black and white as we might imagine. Um, again, it's not unusual to hear people say um, after they lost a job, it was really tough, really difficult going through that, but that somehow that opened up a new chapter in their life, that the loss of one thing made space for something new. And again, it may take time to come to that, or take time to come to see that, but something that appeared a loss um, can be different. People... Uh, go through relationship breaks up or get divorced for some people sometimes. Again, that's a birth of a new chapter in life. And equally the other way, and someone gets promoted at work, something that they've looked forward to. Again, then they find, well, how, how do I relate to my colleagues now? You know, these people I used to have, have a nice chat to, and uh, it doesn't seem quite the same now I'm their boss. Or, you know, getting married. And again, getting married is a wonderful thing. And kind of positive thing we think of, but of course too, then brings new challenges. How do you settle into that and uh, you know continue to grow the relationship past the honeymoon stage? You know, new challenges there. So this sense of what's good and what's bad, as we reflect in that way, can become quite mixed, quite subtle, and perhaps not quite so so black and white. There's an ancient story that illustrates this point. A man living on the border of China cherished his stallion above all else in his life. One day his horse escaped and was captured by the nomads across the border. Everyone tried to console him, but his father only said, What makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? Some months later, his stallion returned home, bringing with him a mate. The man was overjoyed at his good fortune. But his father only said, What makes you so sure this isn't a disaster? (laughs) Riding his new horse one day, he fell and broke his hip and was once more lost in despair. His father asked, What makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? Soon after, the nomads invaded the village and forced every able-bodied man into their army. The father and his lame son were spared this fate. Again, just a story. What's a disaster? What's a blessing? Is sometimes hard to tell.
Although um, equanimity has this sense of uh, being at peace with all of the ups and downs of life, the pleasures and pains, um, it's really important to emphasize that this isn't a cold quality. It's not a detached, disengaged quality. And there's somewhat of a paradox here. So equanimity isn't like becoming like a piece of wood, becoming kind of cold and blank and dead and not feeling anything. I mean, who wants to be like that? It's not, it's not a practice that interests me, you know, turning into a bit of stone. I don't feel anything, nothing touches me, you know. Um, so it's more subtle than that. It's being touched by life, being moved by life, allowing the losses and gains and pleasures and pains to be there, to feel them, to feel them deeply, to be in contact, but not to be governed by them. Not to be governed by them. And uh, I know the uh, Dalai Lama, to me, is uh, an image of, an, uh, an exemplar of many things, including equanimity. But you can see him, of course, this is not a cold person. Yeah, not a cold person. And there's a, um, an account of him hearing some of the stories of the conditions of some of the nuns in, in, uh, in some monasteries. And... Um, you know, very distressing uh, conditions that they were facing, and you know, he's moved to tears in that. He's not kind of sitting there coldly saying, "Oh, you know, I'm not bothered about it." He's moved by it. And again, from the the Tibetan tradition, and they uh, create sometimes these sand mandalas. They're very beautiful things, you know, kind of patterns made out of sand, very intricate and, and lovely. And a great deal of care is put into them, and yet knowing too that they're impermanent. So those two things very much go together. The reflection on uh, impermanence, of change, allowing things to come, allowing things to go, and the care and attention. So the equanimity is not a kind of retreat from care, a retreat from involvement, but it's, it's a way of being involved in a less kind of sticky way. So meditation practice really is definitely not about the end of motivation. It's about a shift in motivation. It's about moving away from being so driven by patterns of of greed or ill will, aversion, so motivation to speak and act and do what we can to, to be with others, to help others, is coming from a different place. It's a more of a motivation from, from compassion, from kindness. And balanced with this sense of equanimity, this understanding that things arise, things pass. So on a, on a very practical level, you know, again, when we're um, kind of talking to people or uh, helping people out who are having a difficult time, yeah, there's the compassion there, there's the kindness there, there's wanting to engage, wanting to help. And so too, it's also helpful to have that balance with an equanimity that, 
that knows that ultimately um, you know, people people make their own choices in life. They make their own path in life. They can find their own way through it. So the real wish to help, but without the kind of arrogant, omnipotent fantasy, if you like, that you know you can fix people or change people or sort everyone out. You know, the kind of equanimity that knows one's own limitations in that way. It's really, really helpful. So the final thing I'd just like to say about equanimity is that I think it's really helpful to be equanimous, if we can, about our own lack of equanimity. <laughs> if it doesn't sound too much of a, a paradox. Um, so often in practice we can set these things up as ideals. You know, There's another idea, I'm supposed to be kind and compassionate and wise, and here's another one, I've got to be equanimous as well. And then we find ourselves, um, I don't know, snapping at somebody, or being a bit irritable, or feeling quite lost again, or... Um, you know, finding that we've got caught up in something quite kind of that might appear to be somewhat trivial, and really being really kind to ourselves in those things, not making too much out of those things. You know, being equanimous with our own reactions, our own times when we get lost, and then the whole practice really is a bit like this thing of coming back to the breath. So coming back to the breath is both something we do very practically. To me, it's also a kind of metaphor, really, for life. That's what we do, you know. We're living our life. Okay, I've got a bit lost. I've wandered off here. I've lost my way slightly. And we can keep coming back. And then we hear, okay, I'm lost again. (laughs) We can keep coming back. But that freshness, that willingness to begin again, that kind of beginner's mind is so helpful. You know, rather than setting this thing up as I'm supposed to be like this and I've got to be like that. Making a big deal out of our kind of reactions and responses. There was a time uh, a few months ago when I was on, on quite a busy train and uh, I was kind of getting up and getting ready to, to get off the train um, and I wasn't sure if the person in front of me was getting off as well. You had that kind of experience on a crowded train and you don't quite know what to do. Um, and perhaps without being aware of it, I was maybe edging a bit closer to this, this guy in front of me than, uh, uh, than I might have done. Um, you know, I wasn't sure he was going to get off. Anyway, he sort of turned around to me and said, you know, hang on a minute, mate, you know, we're all getting off here. Um, and uh, it was quite interesting to notice the response then. So kind of my heart started to beat a bit more quickly. And then there were these thoughts like, you know, oh, that's not very fair. I didn't know if you were getting off. And, you know, I didn't mean anything like that. Um, and it, uh, to me, it's just an interesting que- question. Of where does equanimity come in there? Because equanimity as an ideal would be, you know, someone says something like that. And, you know, I can't. I'm equanimous. <laughs> yeah. But I think in a way it's more, the equanimity is more, okay, there's, you know, there's some kind of physical thing that's happened. It's almost animal thing. The heart beats more quickly, and the, the thoughts go. So the equanimity is about not making a big deal out of all of that. Okay, so the heart was there, and you know, there's a bit of a kind of 
like, it's like a wave that goes through, isn't it? A wave of reaction. Just feeling that. What's that like? You know? Without kind of some whole story of, I've been meditating all these years, I shouldn't have, <laughs> I shouldn't feel like that. You know, oh dear. You can sort of make a lot of suffering out of that if you want to. In trying to build a, the self out of the good meditator, it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> just be without wave, be equanimous without wave. Yeah, so just reflecting really then, equanimity is this balance of mind. In a sense that allows us to hold in mind all of these different shifting circumstances of life, the pleasure and the pain, and when we lose things, when we gain things, and when people approve and when people disapprove, that it can hold all of that. But hold all of that in a way that stays warm, stays connected and stays engaged with life. So let's just uh, sit quietly together for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.